sometimes as a retreat is uh, getting long or um, we see the distant light of the end approaching, we can find ourselves uh, evaluating our practice, trying to figure out uh, what we have gotten from it, what we're getting from it still. And um, sometimes we can come to the conclusion that not much is happening or not much has happened. Or as Greg said in one of his talks, we may at times come to the conclusion that we're actually worse off than when we started. Um, a number of years ago, somebody sent me this link to um, this website called The Dullest Blog in the World. And there's something about it that reminds me sometimes of a meditation retreat. <laughs> Opening a cupboard door, October 16, 2005. There was a cupboard in the corner of the room. I reached out my hand and gripped the door handle. I pulled the door towards me there by opening the cupboard. <laughs> Scratching my knee, September 10, 2004. <laughs> my knee had a slight itch. I reached, I reached out my hand and scratched the knee in question. The itch was relieved and I was able to continue with my activities. <laughs> Standing in the middle of the room, April 21st, 2005. I was standing at a central point in the room. The walls were all at approximately the same distance from me. I continued to stand there for a few moments. Sitting down, June 7, 2011, I was standing up. It occurred to me that a more comfortable posture would be preferable. I located a chair and sat down. This guy has like a cult following. It reminds me a little bit of a meditation retreat. So. And... Um, Here's another. I have to read you another one. This is, this is not the dullest blog in the world. This is also about meditation retreats, but this is from Leonard Cohen uh, from Parabola magazine. You run through your top 10 erotic fantasies, ambition fantasies, revenge fantasies, global ratification fantasies. You run through them all until you bore yourself to death, basically. And the faculty that produces opinions and snap judgments and unrealistic scenarios for your own prominence, after you run through them for a number of years, they cease to have charge. They bore themselves into non-existence. So what are we doing here, right? <laughs> it's like we come to meditation, we're hoping to get enlightened, and then um, we get bored or... Um, it feels like nothing is happening. It's kind of great because it actually goes right to the core of our self-aggrandizement plans. It, um, it means that we can be quite ordinary. Practice is kind of anti-credential. As soon as we uh, think that we're super yogi, then um, something comes along and we learn that we're not, right? But there's also this way that the, this quietness, this, the simple things that we're doing, there's also this way that we really get to appreciate subtlety. It reminded me of a book I read called The 
the sound of a snail eating, the sound of a wild snail eating. It's kind of a great book. It's about this woman who um, wound up with an illness where she could only lie down. If she stood up, her blood pressure couldn't regulate and she'd faint. And so she, she lied down for a long, long time, a couple years at least, I think it was. And a friend brought her a wild snail, and she had this little snail, snail uranium or snail terranium or whatever next to her bed. And um, she talked about during this time she got so quiet that like watching the snail was enough stimulation for her. Like she, she was synchronized with the pace of this snail, like watching them eat, watching them move. And then after she got, um, she said it was interesting, after she got better and she was um, moving around a lot more, um, then that wasn't enough. It's like she couldn't sustain the attention on the snail. So you guys are like, like this, uh, sustaining the attention on the snail. That's where you are right now, like because of the quiet. And uh, I know you're not there all the time, but sometimes, right, there's a settling into uh, a quiet simplicity um, and connection with even opening the cupboard door, standing in the middle of a room, sitting down, all these ordinary acts of life. And even if it seems like nothing is uh, happening, that it's not um, uh, what you expected is not happening or what you'd hoped for is not happening, you're still, while you're being here, one thing that is happening is that you're developing the paramis. And Greg talked about these the other night. I'm going to talk some more tonight, especially about generosity, the first uh, parami. You, You can't always see it. But all of these paramis of patience and resolution and um, sila and equanimity and uh, truthfulness and energy, effort, all of these are being developed every day of our practice here. So even like the times you come to the hall and you don't want to, you're developing resolution, determination, great quality, very necessary on the spiritual path or patience, those sittings that will never end, and you, um, you find the, the willingness to just settle in again and again to what's happening. You're developing patience. Sila, ethical conduct, you're keeping the precepts here. That's great. That's a really beautiful and wholesome quality that you're developing. Our equanimity, when you go through the ups and downs of a retreat, so many ups and downs, right? And you start to learn when we first are on retreat, we, we go for the ride every time. We, it's like a roller coaster. We go up, and then we go down, and we go up, and we go down. And after a while, you start to learn the art of being on a retreat where you get used to, you could say you get used to that, this change, right? And you don't go, you don't jump on the roller coaster so much. You start to be able to accept the ups, accept the downs um, with more grace and uh, less struggle. There you're developing equanimity, beautiful quality. I know in my early practice, I kind of thought of the 
Hermes as perhaps little side excursions we could take if we wanted to, uh, kind of in, uh, extra. So maybe I'll, you know, if I have nothing else to work on, I'll work on patience or some other parami. And um, it took me some time to really understand that these qualities are, they're not incidental. They're not um, side excursions, but they're the heart of our practice. And they're the heart of uh, developing the strength to be able to see deeply, to be able to touch life deeply, to be able to, um, you could say, penetrate the truth or live in the truth. And it's often said that the... um, the strength of our paramis uh, is what really supports the deepening in our practice. It's like being embedded in our own wholesomeness. All of these qualities are wholesome. Being embedded in that allows us the trust and the strength to go deeper in practice. So these qualities are being developed here, and and, um, please, uh, um, if you can, please appreciate that, even in the moments when it seems like uh, nothing is happening. So tonight we've talked about a lot of these paramis in either individual talks or within other talks. Tonight I'd like to talk about the parami of generosity, which is usually listed as the first one. And it's considered, uh, in Buddhism, a a foundational practice, a um, a very important practice for the freeing of the heart and the mind. And I'll talk a lot more about that. I love generosity. It's a very down-to-earth quality. It's very democratic. You don't have to know how to get into jhanas. You don't have to be wealthy. Um, There's so much that we can give. When we talk about giving, we're not just talking about giving money or resources, but we're talking about all the ways that we give of ourselves. I I think of this word in a very broad um, kind of way. I heard somebody explain that we have, all of us have five currencies and uh, these five currencies are resources, money or resources, energy, time, talent, and love. So these are our currencies that we have to spend or to offer. And when I think about us being here, we're definitely offering our time. We're offering our energy. We're offering our love. Our resources, the resources it took for us to get here, we're offering um, so much, uh, we're investing so much giving into our practice. So don't let the, the idea of generosity be too narrow. It's quite wide and includes kindness and service and all the ways that we give of ourselves in this world. I'd like to read a poem by uh, Mary Oliver. 
called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I care for deeply something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning, I went out as usual at sunrise, and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was gift. Do you see what I mean? You give, and you are given. There's a few things I love about that poem. One thing is the understanding that um, we give and we are given. The, the, um, I see gratitude or receiving as part of generosity, part of the loop of generosity. So things um, we appreciate with an open heart what we receive. And then out of that, we, um, we, we naturally want to give. So there's the movement of the heart to, to give. And it's... You could say it's like energy flow, receiving and giving, receiving and giving. And I love how she um, un- seems to understand that. The other thing I love about that poem is, is the line where she says, it hurt a little to give it away. So just the acknowledgement that uh, generosity for um, a lot of us is a practice. It's something that we learn. I know for myself, for example, I didn't come into my adult years as a generous person. And for many years of my practice, generosity has been a focus. It's like how to deeply understand this quality, understand the joyful and liberating aspects of it. Because we can have all this other conditioning where we might not be able to see that right at the beginning. So it's a practice where we're allowing ourselves to discover the beauty of this quality. So one thing that we do with generosity as a practice is we look at our motivation to give. This is considered an important part of giving because giving can come from very different motivations and we can see for ourselves that it feels different depending on what the motivation is. And the liberating quality of giving is different depending upon the um, motivation that's present. A couple years ago, I gave some version of this uh, talk here, and um, I think we were talking about it at dinner, and one of the staff members said he was going to give blood. And I said, "Um, so why do you do that? And he said, because I want to see if I can meet any women in their mid-30s at the blood bank. And we all laughed, and he was half serious, obviously. I mean, I think it was more than that. Um, But (laughs) I liked the refreshing honesty. Uh, (laughs) There was one time many years ago where um, I really explored this this question of motivation in um, an incident that happened uh, at my house, which I'll describe to you. So... I love birds. I love watching birds. And one of the favorite things I like to do in the morning is have a cup of tea and um, look at the birds on the bird feeder. So I tend to have um, bird feeders at the house. So at this house, uh, this was a different house, not where I'm living now, I wasn't super good at keeping the bird feeders high enough to get keep them away from the bears. Um, they were on a porch. And so the bears would, every once in a while, get my bird feeders. 
Um, I remember one time there was this bear and he was running on three paws and he had my bird feeder <laughs> and his fourth paw down off the field. <laughs> and um, for those of you who don't uh, do uh, bird feeders, they're, they're rather expensive um, at, to replace often. And if the birds are pretty hungry, you know, it, it adds up. So one day I was sitting there uh, having my cup of tea and I thought, I've spent a lot of money on bird feeders and bird food. Have I gotten my money's worth? Have I gotten enough enjoyment that it's worth the money I've paid for all of this? This is the lowest form of giving. <laughs> it's a form where um, we give, but there's a lot of self-interest, you know, calculating what we're going to get back. Um, and it didn't feel very good. It felt, I recognized that those thoughts felt there was a contraction and a tightness that didn't feel so good. So I decided to try a different framework in my mind. I thought, this bird food is my dana to the birds, my gift to them, so that they can eat and be healthy and be happy. That felt much better. I noticed that when I looked at it that way, there was more freedom in the heart, more joy in the heart wasn't contracted. But then it was interesting because my mind on its own just went one, one step further. Um, it went to this place where there, there, there was just me and the birds and we were each fulfilling our role in the universe our, in, our, in this dance of giving and receiving. And uh, it wasn't so much I was the giver and they were the receivers. It was just that this was... Um, the dance that was happening right then. So there was even less kind of self-referencing or or um, self-interest. And that felt the freest, the heart felt light and um, connected. Uh, So in Buddhism, they traditionally talk about three kinds, or we traditionally talk about three kinds of giving that would kind of go with each of these. So the first kind is called beggarly giving, where you give um, reluctantly, calculating. And even though it's not uh, the purest form of giving, it's considered good, because you're, you're starting to learn to let go. You do let go, even if it's hesitantly. Or... And then the second kind is um, often called friendly giving. So this is where we start to um, enjoy giving more. We start to um, feel the sense of, of connectedness and, and it's easier to let go and we want to help. We give more open-handedly. The third kind is traditionally called kingly giving, which, well... In the interest of gender equality, we could call it royal giving, but then we have some classism there, so we'll call it selfless giving. Um, and that's where we graciously give the best that we have, and, and we, we really we respond to the situation, what's needed in a situation. And so there isn't so much attachment to being the person giving or the role of the giver, um, and in many ways, we think of ourselves as temporary caretakers of what we have, and, and we let things flow where they need to go. It's kind of the purest form, and, and you can feel it in the heart and the mind. 
There's less of sense of separation. So when we give, whether it is things like um, um, uh, bird food or bird seed uh, or our time or our love, uh, we can look at what's the motivation behind the giving and really notice for ourselves that the feeling of the motivation and, and, and it's, it's the awareness of this motivation and how it feels that purifies itself. So we, we, we see and learn by feeling our own hearts um, the way to go, the way towards more freedom. So we, so we practice giving and we see how the uh, heart responds. Um, I, was, I was watching this afternoon a, a little uh, movie that somebody had sent me. I was actually stalling working on my talk. But um, it was a great story and it was so inspiring. It was this young woman who, uh, when she was 18, she didn't know what to do with her life. She didn't know what she wanted to do. And uh, so she took a, a young American woman. So she decided to take a gap year, and she went um, to Asia, and she wound up in Nepal. And um, see if I can find that story. Here it is. Um, and she was 23 now when she was giving this little talk about what she did. And she talked about... Uh, one day, she was walking on a road, and she locked eyes with this young girl. She showed a picture. Maybe she was hmm, seven or eight, nine, not very old. And she worked as a porter, and she carried like 100 pounds on her back, back and forth to the bus station. Or, and um, she says, and so I locked eyes with this girl, and I saw myself. She said, I, I saw every single piece of myself in this girl. And she said, my world collapsed. I was devastated. So she had this like sense of interconnectedness, right? Like she, you, and I were the same. And uh, it kind of blew her mind, really. And from that moment, she's like, oh, my God, I have to do something. How can we live in this kind of a world where young girls don't get to go to school and they're, and they're porters, right? So she's like, I have to do something. So she decided um, there was another young girl that she'd seen in the neighborhood where she was staying and, and kind of made friends with her. So she's like, I'm going to support this girl to go to school. So she did. She paid the 10 or $20 it cost, actually, for the girl to go to school. Um, and then she wound up helping a couple more. And then she's like, I have to do more. So she, the, uh, this piece of land comes for sale, and it's $5,000, and she wants to build a school. So she calls her parents home. She has $5,000. It's her life savings 
from babysitting like all her life. It's like how much money she has. She said, send it over. So her parents wired it to her. She spends her life savings buying this land. And um, out of that, she winds up building a school there. Then she winds up getting these awards. and She winds up getting um, from Maybelline, <laughs> the makeup company. She winds up getting, it's I think, 20000 from them. And, uh, and uh, she winds up having this school uh, for 200 orphans. And you can tell she's so happy and so confident in herself. And it all started with that initial urge that she didn't see separation, that she saw herself in somebody else's eyes. And there was that natural response to want to give and to help. So I'd like to talk about some of the benefits of generosity, why it's so great, and why we talk about it so much in Buddhism as a source of happiness and um, freedom. First of all, generosity really helps us come out of our own self-absorption. Pema Chodron said, giving ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. When we think about ourselves, we see that the world feels smaller, right? There's claustrophobia of self-absorption. Giving ventilates that. It opens up the heart. It expands the horizons of the heart and the mind. We start to realize, as one um, bumper sticker says, it's only one-sixth billionth about me. (laughs) So much more space. It really releases the mind from the prison of self-centeredness. We start to relax the boundaries that separate us from others. The boundaries become more flexible. And as we relax that, we feel less alienated and we feel more part of the whole. Another... uh, important fact about generosity is that it's a source of joy. And as I said, we might not recognize that um, initially. I know that I didn't. We may have lots of conditioning or assumptions. Some of us might not, but some of us might have lots of conditioning and assumptions that we've learned about scarcity, abundance, getting what we need, um, helping others, all of that, uh, that we might have to um, explore. But ultimately, it is about happiness and joy. The Buddha said, in the ideal gift, the donor before giving is glad, while giving, his or her mind is inspired, and after giving, he or she is gratified. So glad, inspired, and gratified. One time I... uh, decided to do, I was doing a self-retreat at the end of the year, and it, it's a time when I tend to do um, some charitable giving. So I decided to uh, do it consciously as part of my retreat. So each night I would decide um, 
who I wanted to offer to or what group, groups I wanted to offer to. And I would spend time before I made my offering, I would spend time really thinking about who I was going to give to and, and connecting with um, these people or this group. And then while I was giving, after I was giving, it was for me, I was... I was I needed to learn or was I was helping myself learn the happiness and the joy by really connecting with the beauty of what I was doing. In Burma, uh, where Greg and I and uh, Joseph's of course been there too, but Greg and I have both been there recently at this uh, monastery that we go to in the Sagain Hills area, they really um, take their time with giving. So when you uh, give something to somebody, you hand it to them with both hands and you acknowledge the connection with them. And it's like that acknowledging the connection as you give, I feel like it helps imprint the uh, generosity on our minds and our hearts. It's really quite beautiful. There's this uh, young woman who comes to the um, monastery sometimes. She actually, it's a long story that I don't have time to tell tonight, but she was responsible for this whole retreat and a bunch of social um, uh, welfare activities that we do there. By her own act of generosity when she was 15, a Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola's all right. I remember the other night it got a bad rap, but... A can of Coca-Cola actually started this whole retreat, and um, an offering of a can of Coca-Cola actually started this whole retreat. So she would bring, when we would go around to the nuns, we'll make offerings to the nuns. Um, There's about 100 nuns that we support. And uh, one time she brought her young daughter, who was about, I think, about 18 months old at the time, pretty young. And when we would go around, she would have her daughter also do the offerings to the nuns, so she would put the the chat in the daughter's hands, and then she would have the daughter hand the um, the chat to the nuns. And it was, it was so cool and beautiful to watch her teaching her daughter so young about giving and actually having her do it. The other thing that's fun in... Um, in, in Burma is that giving is uh, celebrated. I remember one time when I was there, uh, I was out buying um, Buddha statues. I love Buddha statues, and buying Buddha statues makes me very happy, but most of the ones I was buying that day were actually um, gifts that I was bringing back. I was bringing little ones for all the volunteers at the center that I run, and I was bringing a big one for our altar. So I came back at lunch, and um, I was seated there, and there's uh, these women that we love who um, year after year come and uh, uh, do the the dining service. And um, they were like, what do you have there? They wanted to see. So I sat down. I've learned a little Burmese. I don't know a lot. But um, so I I put together this little sentence. I said, um, Donna, so generosity, Dana, Yekta, Yekta means center. So Dana, Yekta, America. And I showed them 
the things I had, Donna, Yikta, America. And when I showed them, they all, at the same time, they put their hands together and they all said, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And I was a little taken aback. It, it was fun, but I, I wasn't used to being celebrated so much for my generosity. But they were so happy. They were happy for me that I was being generous. Enjoyed it. They, they delighted in it. Another thing that I find um, when we give that there's a sense of alignment with our own values that's really beautiful, that brings a, a kind of sense of rest and relaxation, like a deep settledness or a deep kind of peace. I felt this specifically a number of years ago when I was teaching in Ohio. I teach um, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and they have this place called the Glen, and it's this kind of magical rock formation with streams, and it's a piece of land with streams, and there's something about the place that's just truly magical. So one time I was coming out, and I um, went up to the office and said I wanted to uh, make a donation. And... um, they at some point discovered that I didn't live there. And uh, they were so happy. First of all, it was just so fun to see how happy they were that I was giving, even though I didn't live there. Um, But what I felt myself was like that sense of such joy and settledness and peace and a sense almost of empowerment that I could give to what I value. And I I feel strongly about environmental issues also, so I like to um, really support them. We also like ourselves when we're, gener- when we're generous. It's great for um, self-esteem and in a very positive sense. We feel confident in ourselves, and that kind of confidence feeds our practice. It feeds our trust in ourselves. One of the biggest gifts of generosity is that it's a... Um, very tangible manifestation of the liberation teachings of the Buddha, the teachings that happiness comes from letting go, from non-clinging. So when we practice giving, we're practicing non-clinging, we're practicing letting go, we're practicing the... the, um, the path to freedom from suffering. One day I was interviewing Greg about this. Uh, it was the same time I was giving this um, talk a couple of years ago. Greg may be embarrassed when I say this, but he's really one of the most generous pre- people I know. So I said to him, how have you seen generosity in your life? And he said, I have seen so much happiness in my mind and heart from giving. It turns the heart towards the fact that any happiness is not dependent on outer circumstances, and it shows me the inner abundance of heart, the inner wealth. I warned him that I was going to read that quote. (laughs) He was ready. (laughs) I love that. 
shows me the inner abundance of heart, the inner wealth. And that happiness is not dependent on outer circumstances. Right? When we can let go, we truly know that. When we can give of ourselves, we truly know that. So giving uh, strengthens non-clinging, strengthens non-attachment. It's an antidote to greed. And when we make a habit of of giving, we weaken uh, the factor of craving in the mind. We also, when we give, when we let go of something, we can feel the sense of freedom that comes from that. We've all had that experience where we have something that we're holding on to and then we decide to give it. And then when we really let go, it's interesting, we feel in our heart and our mind a certain expansiveness, a relief and openness. That's the freedom of non-attachment or non-clinging. A teacher from New York City named Ethan Nickturn says that uh, giving transforms our inner hungry ghost into a decent, low-maintenance human being. (laughs) I love that. You've heard of the hungry ghost realm, probably the the wanting, the the, um, endless wanting realm, right? So it transforms that endless wanting. into something much more low maintenance, <laughs> easy to take care of. All that wanting gets transformed into contentment. The happiness of generosity also awakens the energy that we need for transformation. It's very energizing when um, we contemplate uh, having given. Our mind feels lighter and it feels more flexible and it feels easier to concentrate. Generosity makes our meditation soil rich so those flowers that we plant, those seeds that we plant come, come forward and blossom. Somebody should have told Toad of that uh, technique. <laughs> I think of, um, often we talk about Donna and Sila, the first two paramis, as uh, foundational practices for lay people. Sila, of course, uh, for all of us. But... Um, You've probably heard that sometimes the practice for us lay people is described as the practices of generosity, ethical conduct, and mind development. And the the first two, generosity and ethical conduct, I really think of them as practices that offer a kind of protection for our hearts and our minds. They offer us the protection of our own goodness, or the protection of a, of a field of merit, sometimes it's said, or um, they offer us the, the protection of um, benevolence. 
we really need this goodness to practice deeply. It's pretty intense what we ask ourselves to do on retreat. Connecting with the truth as things are, breaking through the veils of delusion, it's, um, it's challenging at times. It's, we're really looking at uh, the fundamental assumptions we have about life can shake us to our core when some of these uh, assumptions start to be seen through. And if we have the protection of these foundational practices, the protection of um, a commitment to non-harming to ethics and the protection of, of the benevolence and giving of our own hearts, it's, um, it's easier. It gives us like a container for our transformation We've created a world of kindness. And um, when we do that, we find that we can relax. And then out of that relaxation, we can um, see, the, see deeply the truth. Our practice itself is a great gift that we give to the world. We're often attracted to practice because we're suffering and we want some freedom for ourselves, and that's a great motivation for practice. And it's also true that our practice isn't just for ourselves, that um, it's of great benefit to countless beings. What we do here is a gift that we give to this world. Every um, bit of understanding that we develop and we take with us is a gift that we give to others. And all the metta in our hearts that we develop and we, um, we take it with us and we share that with others, all the love, the commitment to sila, the refinement of attention that helps us to refine our commitment to Sila, we take that with us too. That's a great gift. The Buddha said, and maybe we've already quoted this, but the Buddha says that by living by the precepts, we give freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to countless beings. All those that we come in contact with, they, there's a sense of um, fearlessness that they, that's the gift that we give them, that they don't have to fear us because of our commitment to non-harming. That's a beautiful gift. I was just thinking recently, I, the first day of um, this retreat when I was coming for our first meeting, there was a part of my car that was dragging on the ground. And... Um, I had, uh, I had to decide if I was going to deal with it or just come here. And I, I really wanted, I didn't want to miss the meeting, so I was coming here. And um, I knew it wasn't great when I saw little kids waiting for the buses on the side of the road going, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh boy. <laughs> so um, by the time I got here, this, uh, uh, it turned out it was a heat shield had fallen off the bottom of my car. And uh, I know nothing about cars, right? So I go into the place in town here. 
you know, as a woman, it's always tricky going into a, pl- a, a car place and like, are they going to tell me the truth or not, right? Or are they going to try to charge me a lot of money or whatever? So the guy kind of looked at it and he said, you know what? You don't have to replace that. For me, it was like he gave me his sila, his honesty, gave me a gift. It was like I was so, um, I, 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 was, I could relax because this guy was going to be honest with me. So I felt for myself just a taste of that kind of gift that we give people when we follow the precepts. And then the metta practice that we're doing, right? All of the Brahma Viharas. And um, we're practicing offering our hearts to others, our kindness, our care, our joy. When we uh, practice that, then obviously that's something that's going to benefit others, right? It's not just for us. So sometimes it's easy when we're suffering here and we're um, trying to um, find some way out of the suffering, right? It's easy to get um, contracted around our practice and and what am I getting from this? What am I getting from this? And it can be helpful at times to just switch that around, not thinking so much about what we're getting but actually what we're giving or what we will give or do give. It's, It's so much freer. Which kind of heart do we want? We can explore that. There's a um, quote that I love that has really stretched me, and I think about this quote a lot. It's by somebody named E.J. Gold from Gnosis Magazine. He said, There's a kind of school where you arrive saying, What can I get? How is this good for me? You see, I had workshops. I figure I must have had 20,000 people through my workshops in 37 years. Most people asked, What is this going to do for me? My answer is always the same. This is not for you. It's not for your benefit. You're not supposed to get anything out of this at all. If you do, you'll be very fortunate because I never have. All you do is give. That's the whole thing. You just give and give and give. And it costs you to give. You even have to pay to give. And in the end, you have nothing, just nothing. Now, if you can handle that, you belong here. Wow, that's wide open, wide open. Um, Our practice is uh, embedded in giving and receiving. Each of us here has our own um, personal story of all that we've received so that we're able to be here. If you've made it here, you are a very fortunate person who has received many, many blessings in your life from many people, many sources. 
it wouldn't be possible for you to be here if that wasn't true. We can appreciate that. That sense that we're supported and receive. And I often think of the, well, the centuries of giving that has um, supported us to be here. So this, I mean, we could just start with the Buddha. We could start earlier, but if we just start with the Buddha and the 2,500, 600 years since the time of the Buddha and how this uh, lineage has been supported by generosity, by the giving of, of folks, folks who've uh, supported many times in the, the um, monastic, for many, much of that time in the monastic community, the um, supported monks and nuns and built monasteries and, and uh, ran monasteries. And, and you think of, wow, that's a lot of people. They're all behind us, cheering us on in some way. And then we think about the years of uh, IMS, and it's been, wow, close to 40 years now. Time flies. It started 40 years ago by Joseph and Sharon and a couple of other people who kind of just stumbled onto this Christian monastery, Catholic monastery for sale. And the early days were pretty wild around here tea time you got um, a handful of peanuts I think that's all it was <laughs> and uh, tea you could have tea too <laughs> um, and uh, wow all these people in the early years that, that, that made this place um, function that kept it going and um, you know so there's 40 years of that I was a cook for a year here when I was 25, 26. Put the, that was back in the 80s. It was fun. And even now, the people here who um, run the center, beautiful support for us. And then, obviously, each other the, the gift that we give to each other by practicing, you know that when you um, are here and you see other yogis who are being mindful, it supports you being mindful. So there's that gift that we give. When we're mindful, we give the gift of mindfulness to all the yogis around us. Or when we practice renunciation and simplicity, we give that gift to all the yogis around us. So we're giving to each other, giving and receiving from each other all the time here. And then there's all the other beings that support us here or live here. They're not directly supporting us, but we can feel the, the beauty of the other beings that live here, the power of them, the chipmunks. You wouldn't really think of putting the word power with chipmunks, but I just did. <laughs> They're great. For those of you who aren't from here, the, the chipmunks are those little rat-like things. <laughs> <laughs> Except they're so cute, you can't call them that. But they're the ones that have the stripe along the back, and, they're, and they run around a lot. Um, 
the other um, beings like the chickadees and the titmice and the woodhatches, all the birds that live here, the crows, the fox. There's a silver fox that dens out sometimes in the woods behind the um, center. Some, some springs she brings babies forth out there. The moose, I saw a moose on my way here last night, driving here, moose crossing the road. Big, huge uh, antlers, or whatever they call them, moose, I guess they're antlers. The devas, the unseen beings that are here, the devas that Greg calls in with his chant, chants, they're here too. They like dharma. The trees, the trees that provide oxygen, and the earth that provides our food, and the sun that warms us. All of it, all of it, we're receiving so much, so much support. And then our, our practice, we give it back. It's not just for us. We awaken um, the heart here. We develop the heart of bodhicitta, the awakened heart, the heart that sees ourselves and all others and that wishes to give, to be of service, to share of ourselves. I'd like to end with one of my favorite stories of, about the power of giving, the power of one simple gift. Uh, this is um, a story about Pablo Neruda from Chile. Chile. Uh, he was he's the most famous uh, Chilean poet that has ever lived and a Nobel um, Prize winner in literature. And, um, he was considered a poet of the people and uh, got himself in trouble for that, as happens at times, <laughs> and uh, got on the wrong side of the dictatorship and was in exile for a number of years. And in this reading, he tells about um, how a simple act of generosity gave him the power to create um, the poetry that he created that um, was such a gift for so many people. One time, investigating in the backyard of our house in Temuco, the tiny objects and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of the fences. I looked through the hole and saw the landscape like that behind our own house, uncared for and wild. This is when he was a little boy. I moved back a few steps because I sensed vaguely that something was about to happen. All of a sudden, a hand appeared a tiny hand of a boy about my own age. By the time I came close again, the hand was gone, and in its place was a marvelous white sheep. The sheep's wool was faded. Its wheels had escaped. All this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into the house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone, opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. I set it down in the same spot and went off with the sheep. I never saw either the hand or the boy again, and I have never again seen a sheep like that either. The toy I finally lost in a fire, but even now, at almost 50 years old, whenever I pass a toy shop, I look furtively into the window, but it's no use. They don't make sheep like that anymore. I have been a lucky man, 
to feel the intimacy of brothers, and I would say sisters, is a marvelous thing in life. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our danger and our weaknesses, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all things. That exchange brought home to me for the first time a precious idea that all of humanity is somehow together. That experience came to me again much later. This time it stood out strikingly against a background of trouble and persecution. It won't surprise you then that I attempted to give something resiny, earth-like, and fragrant in exchange for human brotherhood. Just as I once left the pine cone by the fence, I have since left my words on the doors of so many people who are unknown to me, people in prison or hunted or alone. That is the great lesson I learned in my childhood in the backyard of a lonely house. Maybe it was nothing but a game two boys played who didn't know each other and wanted to pass to the other some good things of life. Yet maybe this small and mysterious exchange of gifts remained inside me also, deep and indestructible, giving my poetry light. Let's sit for a minute. May the fruits of our practice, of our hearing the Dhamma, investigating our own direct experience, may the fruits of this offering contribute to the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.